you're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. As soon as all the kings who were beyond the Jordan, in the hill country, and in the lowland all along the coast of the great sea toward Lebanon, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites heard of this, they gathered together as one to fight against Joshua and Israel. But when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and to Ai, they on their part acted with cunning and went and made ready provisions and took worn-out sacks for their donkeys and wineskins worn out and torn and mended with worn-out patched sandals on their feet and worn-out clothes and all their provisions were dry and crumbly and they went to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal and said to him and to the men of Israel we have come from a distant country so now make a covenant with us but the men of Israel said to the Hivites Perhaps you live among us, then how can we make a covenant with you? They said to Joshua, We are your servants. And Joshua said to them, Who are you, and where do you come from? They said to him, From a very distant country your servants have come, because of the name of the Lord your God. For we have heard a report of him, and all that he did in Egypt, and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon the king of Heshbon, and to Og king of Bashan, who live in Ashtoreth. So our elders and all the inhabitants of our country said to us, Take provisions in your hand for the journey, and go to meet them and say to them, We are your servants. Come now, make a covenant with us. Here is our bread. It was still warm when we took it from our houses as our food for the journey on the day we set out to come to you. But now, behold, it is dry and crumbling. These wineskins were new when we filled them, and behold, they have burst. And these garments and sandals of ours are worn out from the very long journey. So the men took some of their provisions, but did not ask counsel from the Lord. And Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live, and the leaders of the congregation swore to them. Good morning again, church. So good to have you with us. Uh, We have now rounded the turn and are in the back half of our series in Joshua. Uh, And so we are going to be looking at that passage that was just read out for us now today. Uh, We have essentially, particularly for the last few weeks, been in, I guess, what we would describe as somewhat of a a wartime epic uh, of a story Now, wartime epics just happen to be one of the main options that my Netflix algorithm brings uh, before me uh, on Netflix. And so I was sucked in recently to watch uh, the big, long wartime epic, All Quiet on the Western Front. Uh, Apparently, it's up for some ridiculous amount of Academy Awards tomorrow at the Oscars. Uh, And I watched this movie, and it didn't take long for me to watch it and realise that it actually was not a wartime epic. It was an anti-war film trying to betray the complexity of war and the reality of of what really is slow, 
mundane life of the soldiers and the incredibly complex reality of how these soldiers' lives are in the hands of perhaps some distant political movers and shakers who make the decisions far away from the brutality of the front lines. And so because the movie's trying to portray this, the movie itself is very slow and it is very long. Uh, And so it became one of those things that I watched while doing other things. And yet there was one particular scene that gripped me that caught my attention. Uh, This gut-wrenching scene highlights just how war really is. And it was the uh, protagonist in the film, or the the, the main character, Paul, in the film, who was a a German, and it's set in World War I, and he finds himself in this kind of muddy crater there on the front lines of, of northern France. And then he's met by one lone French soldier, and it's just one-on-one, the two of them there in this crater. And they start fighting each other to be the, the one lone survival, survivor. And, and Paul is, is able to, to win this duel, wins it with a knife by stabbing the, the Frenchman. But as the Frenchman there is, is lying next to him, painfully trying to gasp in his final few breaths, Paul has... A premonition. He has a, a, a sense, a realization of this man's humanity. That this isn't about some kind of, kind of distant political game. This is about real people. And so Paul starts trying to encourage him to live, trying to su- help him survive. The very man that he caused to be in this predicament, he now turns to try to save. And after the man passes away, he eventually digs into his jacket to find a picture of his wife and child and an identity card showing his name and his occupation. And so he comes face to face with the humanity uh, behind what is war. Now we've seen in the, in the battles uh, the last few weeks here in the promised land that as we look from afar, thousands of years removed, looking through the, the, the writings, the text of Scripture at this moment, that we might kind of be tempted to think this is kind of just kind of, this is a black and white issue. This is, this is a very simple thing that was, was going on back then. There's the good guys on the one side, there's the bad guys on the other. The bad guys get punished. Well, we actually come today to find that it's not as simple, black and white, as it might otherwise seem. There is complexity, there is compromise, there is real life ramifications that extend down through the generations for the decisions that are made here by the leaders. So this is not just a story of glory, but it is a human story. And so we come to Joshua chapter 9, and we enter into the complexity of it all. There's a need for politics. There's a need for decisions to be made between the leaders of nations, a bit of negotiation. And it all pivots today around this peace treaty between the Gibeonites, who we'll meet in a moment, and God's people, the Israelites. And because of the grave consequences, the human life that is at stake in this peace treaty. There is a lot hanging on it. Sometimes I like dipping my uh, mind into World War history, and I know of another significant moment in World War II where uh, in the lead-up to it, Hitler was breathing threats against the rest of the world, and there was some discussion amongst the the leaders of the Allies around how they should respond to this uh, maniac, essentially, there in Germany. And one response was from the British Prime Minister at the time, Neville Chamberlain, who went to uh, meet and essentially form a peace treaty 
with Hitler in Munich. And he came back to Britain uh, waving the, the, the words itself, the Munich Declaration, that it was going to be okay. We had found peace. There it is. It's in writing. We have peace. Uh, and Winston Churchill had another response. He said, you cannot reason with a tiger when your head is in its mouth. Negotiating with a madman was madness. And we couldn't trust Hitler's words, he said. And of course, history tells us who had the better sense. But there's a sense from that story that, that complex times like this mean we need to actually fall back on words. We need to rely on something. Where can we find in the midst of the fog of war, where can we find in the midst of the fog of life, something to fall back on that we might be able to trust, that we might be able to be held up by and this is going to be a great lesson for us today, because just like them, although you and I, we don't have the, the, the camo on, we aren't engaged in, in wartime mindset, we are, though, in a life that is complex. I'm sure you'll agree with me that uh, it takes a lot of energy just to live. There is the busyness of our lives, there is the future to think about, there are family pressures, there are mental health issues, there are cultural changes, there are hopes, dreams, disappointments, relationships, there are money problems, there are possibilities with where to spend uh, money, there are a million things to think about, there are a million different messages that are coming before us, that there is the, the common phrase of a, of a fog of war and yet it feels like for us it's really just the fog of ordinary human life. Life is not simply black and white, it's not governed by Instagram highlights, rather it is complex. And so today's episode in Joshua chapter 9 is going to remind us all, where, what can we fall back on in the midst of such complexity? What can we fall back on in a world like ours? Whose words are we able to lean on and rely upon? And where should we go in the midst of discerning where to turn next in the midst of all that comes before us in our life? I mentioned at the top of our uh, sermon series, if you joined us about four or five weeks ago, that in the introduction to Joshua, you know, Joshua in our Bibles is put in the history category, and yet Joshua in the Jewish Bible is put in the prophetic prophecy category. And there's a helpfulness about that because it signals that God has something to say through this history. God has something to say through this story to us today. And he indeed has something to say to us particularly today. The 16th century Theologian John Calvin, he uh, famously summed up uh, that God's law had three particular purposes for us. The first was that it was a mirror, that it would reflect back to us God's holiness and our sinfulness. The second was that it was a restraint, that even though the law can't change the heart, it can change your behavior, and that would be a good thing when you're um, kind of forming a society, that the righteous would be protected from the unrighteous. But thirdly and importantly, the law exists as a guide, that it actually tells us what God wants and what His will is, and therefore how we should behave. And that's why the, the Ten Commandments have been so influential in our culture and even down to today. And the same is true, not just for the law, but for the, all the Old Testament. And so here as we enter into this kind of story right in the middle of the book of Joshua, right in the middle of the Old Testament... We know that from it, yes, the commands of God are, are good for us and expose who we are, but they also guide us going forward. This story is going to guide us. We're going to learn from the Israelites today. 
Now, first, a reminder of where we've been to get to this point in Joshua chapter 9. I've, I've, got, a, I've got a map for us. Uh, I'll try to stand out of the way. But you can see uh, from this map, the, the Israelites came in from the east, and there's that little river there, and that was the great story of God parting the waters yet again for them to walk over on dry land. And so the Israelites crossed into uh, the promised land, and we know of the story of Jericho, and they came there to that military stronghold on the edge of the promised land, and they defeated of course, with God's help, uh, Jericho. And then last week, they tried to come upon uh, the city of Ai, and because of the unholiness of themselves and the way that they kept things in their greed, Achan and his household, uh, they were defeated by Ai. And then finally, we didn't get to it, but in Joshua chapter 8, after there was repentance, after there was remorse, uh, God brought his judgment upon I. And so at this point, uh, Israel are now camping back at Gilgal, uh, but they've defeated Jericho and they've defeated I. And that reputation, that word of their defeat, their, their triumph in military might has spread inland. And we come to the middle here to Gibeon. Gibeon right there in the center of the promised land. They have heard about these people, the Israelites. They have heard about their victory over Jericho and the city of Ai. And so now we get to meet them and their interactions with Israel. In Joshua chapter 10, we find out that Gibeon are actually called a great city, like one of the royal cities. And we're told that actually all of the men were warriors in Gibeon. And yet... For all of their greatness and their wartime readiness, the Gibeonites don't want war, they want peace. And so let's talk first about the Gibeonite deception, essentially summarise what's happening here in Joshua chapter 9, and then we'll get a few points for us to learn from it. Let me read Joshua chapter 9, verse 1 to 5. It says this, As soon as all the kings who were beyond the Jordan in the hill country and in the lowland, all along the coast of the great sea toward Lebanon, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites heard of this, they gathered together as one to fight against Joshua and Israel. We're going to come to that fight next week in Joshua chapter 10. But for now... It tells us, but when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and to Ai, they on their part acted with cunning and went and made ready provisions and took worn out sacks for their donkeys and wineskins, worn out and torn and mended with worn out patched sandals on their feet and worn out clothes and all their provisions were dry and crumbly. And so Gibeon are responding differently. They don't want war, they want peace. And so instead of puffing up their chests and getting their weapons, instead they do something very cunning. They take their clothes, they take their sandals, and they start to make them look old and tired. Perhaps they head to the nearest Salvos and the Savers store, and they stock up on clothes that are going to make them look like they are old and worn out, get some old bags, some old backpacks. It's as if they're kind of preparing to provide the costumes for an Oliver Twist musical here. They're, they're, they're worn out, and so that they might come to the Israelites and essentially prove to them that they've traveled such a far distance. They've come so far that everything is worn out. They even put their bread out in the sun to go stale so that they can prove to these Israelites that they've traveled a long way. And so they're putting on this act toward Israel as Israel are approaching them from the east. They want to meet them before they meet the city. Now, funnily enough, it turns out that the Gibeonites have been very clever here. They've done some some cunning counter 
intelligence here. Because we actually read in the book of Deuteronomy that before Israel went to the promised land, Moses told them, hey, when you go into the promised land, no one needs to survive. And yet, if you meet foreigners, first you need to offer them peace. And so Gibeon must have done the the study to work out, hey, we can actually get this loophole for ourselves here. We We can pretend that we are foreigners and they'll have to offer us peace. And so the leaders of Israel talk amongst themselves, kind of not not convinced to begin with. And then they take of the crusty bread and they see their worn out clothes and bags and wineskins. Because of what they see, they believe. And so we're told in verse 15, and Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live. And the leaders of the congregation swore to them. And so it's set in stone. There it is, a covenant, a binding agreement before God between Israel and Gibeon. The peace treaty has been signed. And then the celebrations, though, don't last very long. Verse 16, at the end of three days, after they'd made a covenant with them, they heard that they were their neighbours and that they lived among them. And so it takes just three days to find out the truth, for the facade to drop. And Israel find out they've been incredibly foolish. And so the people complain to Joshua, like, how did this happen? Where was, where was the leadership breakdown here? What was, what was going on to, to create this, this peace treaty that we're now bound to when these people are meant to be destroyed? And so they have a little bit of back and forth, and yet they commit to what they've said. They know that this covenant was made before God. They can't go against it anymore. And so instead, they negotiate or they uh, allow the Gibeonites to hold true to this peace treaty. And yet, they need to now serve them as their servants. And the Gibeonites seem to be happy with that. They They get to live at least. And so they live the rest of their time serving the people of Israel, gathering wood and water and serving the tabernacle. So that... Is Joshua chapter 9. So what is going on with this story? What can we glean from this story? Well, let's talk about a couple of things here. First, let's talk about pride and compromise. Pride and compromise. How could Israel's leaders be deceived and be fooled so easily? Well, it's actually quite clear for us in the text. God tells us very plainly in verse 14 what happened. So the men took some of their provisions, but did not ask counsel from the Lord. They took some of their provisions, but did not ask counsel from the Lord. This is where their folly starts. See, there were instructions in the law for how Israel should handle all the gray areas. All those moments in life that don't have a specific command for, where there isn't that explicit clarity from God about what to do, what to decide, how to act that they were actually meant to come before the priest and inquire of the Lord. But instead, we're told here that they instead inquired of the provisions. They they looked at their food and and clothing, and they focused on their senses instead of going to the Lord. It shows us, doesn't it, much like last week, that you can take the people from wandering in the desert, but you cannot take the wandering out from within the people. They're in the promised land, and yet pride has gripped their heart. It's that pride that has made them trust in their own senses more than seek the wisdom of God. And that has shown up 
their foolishness. Now, like them, I know the temptation well. You know, I have a propensity to, to analyse and interpret everything that comes into my life uh, around me and, and jump to a, clusion, a conclusion that might seem obvious to me and, and, and never think of, of bothering God to, to bring Him into the, the decision-making that I'm all about in my daily life. I've got a propensity to, to replace seeking the counsel of God with, with seeking my own comfort, and if that means changing anything, well, that's probably too hard, and God wouldn't want my life to be hard, would he, at all? So, so why would I want to kind of bother him with, with injecting him into what this situation is? I know the answer. I'm, I'm going to go my own way. So I have a propensity to, to bend the will of God to my circumstances so that I might keep going with what I want to do and kind of theologize away bringing him into my life. See, so many of us, whether professing Christians or not, we run the responses as we react to the lives that are playing out before us through the filter of our own convenience rather than the filter of God's counsel. So just think about it. When when is the last time that you personally brought a decision before the Lord that you needed to make? When's the last time that you wrestled with something and that wrestle was played out with God, giving Him the opportunity to direct you and guide you? Not just to get His blessing on something that you'd already decided, but to seek Him on something where you didn't know what to do. Isn't it true that if if we never bring our lives to the Lord for His direction... Well, we're just living as functional atheists, aren't we? If he doesn't actually get to influence us in the day-to-day, that there probably actually isn't any day, as much as we say that there is, where he does influence our lives. And so in this moment, it seems much easier for the Israelites just, just, just to go along with, with what's right in front of them. It looks old and, and tired. It looks like they've come a long way. Peace would be a lot easier than having to go to war now with these people. They're all warriors after all. Let's make the peace treaty. And so like them, our approach can lead us, like them, to compromise. Maybe, maybe you start dating someone who doesn't share your faith. You know that, that, that faith part of your life that's meant to be most central to it? meant to be the most important thing that's going on in your life, but ha, there's someone here. There's an opportunity. There's a prospect. You start to trust your senses about what they might provide you. Safety, companionship, friendship, love, support, tenderness, a shoulder to lean on. And soon enough, you're in a commitment without ever having sought counsel from the Lord. Maybe you, you go into business, investment or, or, or partnership with someone and, and you know their track record. You, 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 you kind of got dollar signs in your eyes like, oh, if I can partner with this person, this is like a sure thing. This is going to be incredible. And, and you're, you're thinking about the provisions, all that's going to come to you because of now this, this strategic, important partnership that you have created. And yet you jump into the deep end without ever having sought counsel from the Lord. 
You see this all the time in the, in the not-for-profit space. You know, an organisation gets into a partnership or a connection with a source of funding. Man, think about all that we could do with that funding. Think about all we could do with that money. And so you jump into bed with them, you get the funding, and yet you never seek counsel from the Lord, and soon enough the mission drifts. Without seeking the counsel of the Lord, we are seeking to compromise our faith. We are asking to compromise our faith. And so perhaps we resonate here with the failure of the Israelites. And yet we know from the Scriptures that this need not be. So you and I, we're called to a better way. You and I are called to seek the Lord and we have this unique opportunity to seek the Lord because He has sought us. And so we can go to Him to avoid this folly and instead walk in the way of wisdom. You know, when Jesus arrived on the scene, he arrived not just as the Son of God and the Messiah, as incredible as that is, but also not just as as fully divine, but fully human. And so because of his his humanness, his humanity, those attachments matter that he entered into the world as an Israelite. And there's a sense there that as Jesus was, was walking on this earth, he was functioning in his own time as the true and better Israel that he would be perfect where they had failed. And so in his humanity, he had to think about things. He had to fight for what was right. He had to wrestle with God sometimes, to to ask him for strength, to endure what God was asking him to do. He had to pursue the will of the Lord. One example is just as how Gibeon are trying to deceive Israel here. There's a moment in Jesus' life where the devil himself comes to him at the beginning of his ministry to try to deceive him. And just like Gibeon, who had done their counterintelligence, the devil had done his counterintelligence as well. And so he starts quoting scriptures at Jesus to try to prove to him, to try to get a peace treaty with the devil, to try to compromise his mission. And in the midst of that deception attempt, Jesus, he stands firm. He's able to resist the evil one because he knows the words. He knows God's word. He's so full of God's word that he knows the wise way to go. He's so full of God's word that any potential compromise isn't an option for him because he knows and has sought the counsel of the Lord in his word. And so Jesus completes and he's perfect where Israel failed. And just like them, for you and me, Jesus perfectly lives out our life where we have failed. So much of our life we put down to not being relevant to what's written in the Bible. Or the Bible having very very little to say about it. Should I marry this person, that person, or no person? This job or that job? Live in this house or that house? Sign the kids up for this or that? Spend the money in that way or this way? And it's true that the Bible isn't always speaking into our personal choices in our everyday lives, but there is a whole chunk of the Bible that is giving us wisdom. Wisdom for how to live. The New Testament tells us that if we are in Jesus, you and I have been given the mind of Christ. Not that we have his IQ or his personality, but that we are so filled with the Spirit of God that we can respond like him to temptation. That we can decide with his wisdom what's best to do. And so there are whole books of the Bible given to you to know how to apply the mind of Christ. Books like Proverbs and Job, wisdom literature. 
And the book of Proverbs itself says, the beginning of wisdom is this, get wisdom. And whatever you get, get inside. In other words, the wisest thing you can do, the wisest kind of person you can be is to be someone who knows you need to be more wise. You need wisdom. You need to seek the counsel of the Lord. And so how can we avoid the pitfalls of living our life like I often do, kind of pre-committed to the way that I want to go, and that kind of buffers me from ever considering seeking the counsel of the Lord, and instead live a life where we're open, we're sensitive, we're, we're conscious that God wants us to walk in certain waves. Well, we need to get wisdom. So let me encourage you to read the wisdom books of the Bible. To seek the wisdom of the people that God has put in your life who also have the mind of Christ. Friends, family, pastors, leaders, elders. Let me encourage you to find wisdom by pursuing the way of Jesus in your life. That we can look at how he lived because it was humanity done best. And so wisdom will keep us from foolishness. Wisdom tells us to seek the Lord. And in seeking the Lord, we will find wisdom. And so try to, let me encourage you to, to make it a habit. How can you ask the counsel of the Lord for your daily life and decision making? How can you come before the Lord and get his input into your day-to-day life as these Israelites failed to do? Now, Israel failed. And the Gibeonites now are in a, a peace treaty with them. But the second half that I want to focus on now flips the script. And it tells us that even though they entered into this foolishly, they weren't going to be let off from their commitment. And so let's talk about oaths and promises. I mentioned earlier in the service that some of the good gospel fruit happening down in City on a Hill, uh, Whittington. There was one story I didn't mention. Here's another story that came with the other two that I already mentioned. Pete writes, Then there is Charles. Two years ago, he was in a high-speed police chase and faces court next week. But a lot has happened in the two years since. He's been through rehab and is still clean. He's found Jesus and is trying to live for him. This is most significant because his lawyer is telling him to lie to escape the charge. But as a Christian, he knows this is wrong. It is highly likely, therefore, he'll end up in prison again, possibly for an extended period of time. What a way to show your commitment to Jesus. And that story resonated with me because of how close it is to the ramifications, the consequences of what happens here in this text, that Israel are bound to their prior folly, even as they realize, "Uh uh-oh, we've done something terrible here. And so just as the people are trying to tell the leaders that, hey, you've done the wrong thing, how have you kind of committed us to these people? We need to back out of it. We're told in in verse 19 and 20 that the leaders said to the congregation, we have sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel, and now we may not touch them. This we will do to them. Let them live, lest wrath be upon us because of the oath that we swore to them. And so in the midst of their prior, prior failure, they do get something right. They know that God is committed to the words of his people that he is ferociously attached to his own credibility 
as expressed through the words of his people. And so they can't go back on their peace treaty. They can't go back on this covenant. It says something about God's own promises if they were to do that. Now, we know they're not wrong because there's another story that happens 400 years into the future where there's this guy, King David, who's now the the king. And there's a famine in Israel and King David does what Israel doesn't do. He seeks the law. He's like, what's going on, God? Why is there a famine here amongst your people? For three years, there's this, this famine. And so David comes before God and God says, well, actually, the reason there's a famine is because you're receiving the judgment of what your predecessor Saul uh, did in trying to kill the Gibeonites. And so Saul came to the throne and wanted to flex his muscle and he paid no regard to this peace treaty. And instead, generations, hundreds of years after, thought, oh, this will be all right. We need to get rid of these people. And yet the Lord still held Israel to their promises. God is on the side of his own word. God is on the side of his own honour. God is on the side of his commitments. Jesus himself speaks to us and to the world about how important our word is. He tells us that out of the heart, the mouth speaks. That how we honour our word says something about what's going on inside of us. He says, so let your yes be yes then. And let your no be no. Now we live in a day and we have hearts that treat our words, perhaps as the Israelites, flaky. Say one thing, act another way. And so we actually get so used to lies that we categorize them, don't we? We have white lies, which they're the good ones. Like you're good to joke about white lies. And then we have like acceptable lies. Like when you go to a job interview and you're asked, what's your greatest weakness? Like, like, no one really takes it seriously as long as you can come up with, with some kind of answer that really is a positive. And then we have exaggerations. And if someone exaggerates enough, everyone kind of just accepts it and puts, puts it down to kind of their personality. You know, that's just, just who they are. It's just, just what they do. But God takes his word seriously. God takes our word seriously because our word is an expression of our heart. And even more than that, God takes our word seriously because as his people, our word is an expression of his heart. Our words represent his word. And that's what makes my line of work, like this is an occupational hazard in my line of work. We're told in the Bible, you know, not many of you should become teachers because you will be judged more strictly. And so I'm conscious when I get up here, and even right now, you know, I am, I am declaring to you what I believe God has said. And God's going to hold me accountable for what I say to you that God has said because you are to receive it as God has said this. There's a weight to these words. All of us who claim the name of Christ, who are living and walking and talking under the banner of Christ, we represent him. And so to renege on our commitments is to renege or to say something about God reneging on his. And I want to point us to that or point our attention to that because this is where the beauty in this passage lies. In this kind of political complex kind of chapter here in the middle of Joshua, there is good news for you and me. Because Israel have shown themselves to be, whether in the wilderness or in the promised land, last week and this week, they've shown themselves to be flaky, scattered, half-hearted, open to compromise. God, on the other hand, he has shown himself to be right here, 
unchanging, that his word is eternal, that his character is holy and righteous and upright. And this is not some detached theology that has no bearing upon our lives. Rather, knowing this can make one of the biggest differences in your life right now. Because the essence of Christianity, the essence of our relationship with God, the essence of your relationship with God rests not on your commitment or your character, but on His commitment and His character. And so that God honored His commitment to the Gibeonites, even though it started from folly, it started through compromise, it started through foolishness, that just proves how much more will God honor His own commitment to us when He has invited us to come and enter into a relationship with Him and be reconciled to Him. The book of Hebrews tells us this in this way. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, that's you and me, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. This is good news. You and I can know the eternal comfort, the eternal security, the eternal safety of having this kind of God promise to us all that he promises to us in the gospel, that he's going to receive you, that he's going to exchange your sin for his righteousness, that you are free of your guilt and shame, that you are going to be invited and ushered into eternity with him forever, that God will protect us, whatever might come against us. He tells us that if those whom he foreknew, he predestined. Or he called, sorry. Those whom he called, he also predestined. And those whom he predestined, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. That golden chain is unbreakable because it's not based on how you feel when you wake up in the morning. It's not based on how pumped you are on a Sunday morning to come to church. It's not based on how strong you feel like your faith is in God. It's based on the strength of God's commitment and the strength of God's character for you. So often we think that our faith is as strong as our conviction or our optimism or our personal sense of subjective peace. Now Jesus says that your faith can be as small as a mustard seed and you can tell that mountain to move places because it's not about the size of your faith. It's about the object of your faith. And when that faith is in God, this kind of God, then you can have such confidence to rest, to lean back, upon his word and his character. God is a God who always keeps his promises and that God proved that he was that in protecting the Gibeonites. It proves that he will also be that for us in sending forth his own son as he has. That we, when we trust in Jesus, come into a safe and secure place. And so if he did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, 
how will he not also graciously give us all things? You can know that assurance today. And you can live in that assurance. And you can express that assurance by seeking the counsel of the Lord in your life and by trusting in the promises of God for the rest of your life. Let's pray together. Gracious God, we praise you for your faithfulness. We praise you that in the midst of our flakiness and our unfaithfulness and uh, all the ways that we uh, um and are or even just go with the flow without seeking your will, Lord, you, in spite of us, contrary to us, are a God who is sure, steadfast and unshakable. And so, Lord, we lean on you afresh this morning. And we don't come to you today and we don't live our lives basing our relationship with you upon the surety of our faith or the surety of our conviction or our sense of passion for you. Lord, those are all good things, but we base our faith upon the solid rock that is your word, that is your promise, and that is what you have done for us in Jesus. Lord, we thank you that in you, we see all the evidence we need to have assurance that you love us now, that you will love us tomorrow. You will love us at the, the, the great moment in the future when we feel like we've failed and that you will love us when you usher us into eternity forever. Because you love us not because of our loveliness, but because of your word, because of your promise, because of your grace. And so help us enjoy that. Help us breathe in the oxygen that that is, that that might be to our lungs, to our spiritual lives, that you might revive us and renew us so that we might live for you, seeking you, wanting you in our lives. And so come and shape us and change us from people who are so prone to compromise to people who might rest on your promises. Do that in us, I pray, by the power of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.